will say, Jamie, despite you, you know, saying all is well at work, you do sound beaten down. I'm tired as Yeah. My sleep schedule isn't, isn't on it, so I gotta go to bed earlier. Stand yeah. up, staying up, and it's not, it's not good. Oh, I know the feeling all too well. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll turn it on. Look, after a while, you get used to it getting up early. It sucks, but it is what it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, oh, yeah. gotta do what you gotta do. Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Crack Rack. It's my name is Alex Gruskin. And joining me for our final Wimbledon recap of the wonderful fortnight that is the championships at Wimbledon, we're bringing back our two favorite Crack Rackets writers. Uh, I'll, I'll go with him first since he is on third in the leaderboard uh, in terms of appearances. It is, of course, North Carolina native former four-star tennis recruiting player and Crack Rackets writer, Matt Sikowiak. Matt, hey, great shot. What's going on, Gruskin? Glad to be back. I mean, uh, it's been a little while now, but uh, we're back at it, man. Thanks the, for having me, as always. The obvious first question, actually, let me loop in Jamie first, because I'm, I'm going to want to hear his opinion as well. So joining us as well, again, it is Denison, tennis superstar, now real employee of the world, and also Crack Rackets writer, Jamie McDonald. Jamie, hey, great shot. Absolutely, but before we do that, again, Matt, we missed you last pod, Jamie and I had to man the ship, and I thought it was a very fun episode, I enjoyed it quite a bit, but in the middle of it, you know, I did my impression of you, I did my, now Gruskin, Gruskin, I watched the match, and I have to ask, what did you think of my impression? It was classic, man, I've had that thing on repeat ever since uh, (laughs) I heard it the first time, so very well done with that, very well done, I didn't know you had it in you, but... Good job. I'm thinking uh, we'll have Westoff clip the part of just me saying Gruskin, Gruskin, and that can be your ringtone for me. That's it, man. I'm (laughs) down. Jamie, thoughts? Any any side comments? It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Now that I hear them side by side, I hear, you know, the articulate speech. It's nice. It's nice to hear from both of you. I don't think it's quite... Quite perfect, but it's close. Maybe a couple more episodes you'll get it done. I was going to say, the hardest part's the enthusiasm. You can't fake that enthusiasm. And I'm hoping that enthusiasm carries over to this last episode because we obviously have only one match left to discuss. We already covered the women's singles final, the men's doubles final, the last match of the tournament. The me- Well, not the last match on the draw, but the last one we're going to discuss is, of course, the beatdown that we all predicted. Novak Djokovic, Matt's upset pick of the tournament, wins his 13th Grand Slam title. He takes out a worn-down Kevin Anderson, the number 8 seed, 6-2, 6-2, 7-6. I mean, there's so many places we could go with this conversation, but the first thing we have to talk about is the tennis we actually saw and break down what happened and why it did. And so, Matt, I want to go to you first. You know, you said at the outset, to your credit, the one prediction we got right is if Novak Djokovic plays the level we think he's capable of, you know, he's still the guy who can compete with anyone in the draw. And, you know, throughout this tournament, do you think it's fair to say that he played the highest level of tennis from the first round to the final? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know if I can go that far just because... Interesting. The first couple couple rounds, man, Fed and Nadal both looked really good. I mean, so did Novak. Um, obviously, all the way through, yeah, he's the choice because he won the thing. But, uh, man, those first couple rounds, there were so many players that were dominant, especially those big three. So, um, overall, I think Novak gets the nod there. Well, interesting. But then in terms of this match, I mean, you make some good points about those early rounds of play. There, You know, so many guys were playing well early on, and that's what made the second week so exciting. So I, I think you made fair points. But in terms of this match and, you know, carrying over his level from the semifinals. There was no lull for Djokovic, you know, physically in those first two sets. He, Yes, Anderson was very worn down, but Novak looked fresh. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is really what I expected to happen. And 
it, it was disappointing. It was it was not a fun final for me to watch. I, you know, I watched the whole thing, but I, obviously we wanted a little bit better of a match. But Novak, you know, the form that he had throughout the tournament, like you said, Anderson was worn down. So, uh, you know, Novak physically, I don't know if he had some, you know, magic potion or something, <laughs> what he's got his trainers doing. But, yeah, you know, he had less than 24 hours to come back on Sunday to play that final after that ridiculous match with Rafa. And, you know, he looked fine. So physically, you know, no ill effects for him. Anderson, on the other hand, we saw quite a few of them. Well, I think it's, you know, it's the gluten, right? Now that he's gluten-free, the recovery, when you don't have bread in your system, it's just that much easier. But, you know, Jamie, tactically in this match, you saw all week Anderson's aggression, his ability to step up, hit big first serves, also hit big returns off of shorter balls, you know, keep the points relatively short, but still for Anderson to be able to slug away from the baseline. That was his recipe for success all week, and just in this match, Novak didn't really give him a chance to play any offense, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of that for Anderson started with the serve, and, you know, maybe that's because his legs and his body were tired, but... You know, looking at his serve numbers, you know, his first serve percentage was down a little, 61%. Um, and, you know, then when you move down to the second serve, you know, he's winning less than half the points when he gets when it's his second serve. So, just gave Djokovic too many looks with that. Uh, you know, like I said, maybe his body was just worn down, but uh, gave way too many opportunities for Novak to get in there and steal points on Anderson's serve. And once you're doing that to someone who relies on their serve so much, it's, uh, it's trouble all the way down. I mean, one of the most... Uh, incredible stats from this. You look at the second serve win percentage, Anderson goes 15 of 31. You know, you convert less than 50% of your second serve points. When you're a player who is a 6-8 player, the serve is so important to your game and holding serve. And early on, it just really didn't matter. Novak was in every service game. And it was funny to me because Djokovic actually seemed to have an easier time getting free points on his first serve than Anderson did. And You know, for Novak, in every game, it's always, I'm going to make as many returns as possible. Even if my return is only deep middle, I'm going to get this uh, match to, or get this point to neutral. And a a big thing I saw for Anderson in that first game of the match, you know, two unforced errors, and then for him to end that first game with a double fault. I mean, worst case scenario for Kevin Anderson from the start. And so, I, I mean, I don't know, Matt. Anderson picked his level up in the third set, but at any point, were you concerned for Djokovic? Oh, no, not at any point. I mean, like you just mentioned, even after that first game, he double-faulted to get broken, and uh, it was it was off and running from there. But the couple things I do want to point out about this, um, look at Anderson's MPHs on his first serve. 126 was his average. 110 on the second, that's fine, I think, but... The 126 is low for me. You know, if he was really going to make some noise in this match and, and push Novak, that serving has to be up, you know, in the 130s. Maybe not in the 130s, but about 130. And he's only averaging 126. I think fatigue came in, you know, with that. Obviously, he was tired. But, you know, 126 is not going to cut it against arguably the greatest returner of all time. So I think that was an issue for him. And then really the one stat that you you have to look at, and you can only look at this stat, and and you'll know how the match turned out, was look at the break points. Joker goes 4 of 4 on break points. He capitalizes all four times that he gets the chance. Anderson, 0 of 7 can't convert one so you look at that stat right there you already know who won the match and you know he won it convincingly so you know for me those two things right there kind of tell the story and uh, again I do think a lot of it was fatigue Anderson obviously played six and a half hours against John Isner he was tired no doubt about it but Novak also had a a long one against uh, Rafa so you know credit he was he was a more fit guy and he he came out the winner like he should have uh, yeah, one thing I want to say on that, Matt, 126 for a uh, first serve average there. I I don't think that the pro- I don't think that's the problem. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty big first serve average, especially when you consider that like that's including slice out wide. You know, trying to get Djokovic off the court and everything. And you know, I mean, some serving you saw he was probably a little fatigued, like I said, and maybe that had to do more with the percentage miss and you know, um, just hitting his targets less, but. I don't know. I don't know necessarily if the miles per hour there is, is the big issue. I'm not. I'm not sure. Alex, what do you think? Well, I think I think Matt has a point in terms of the effectiveness of Anderson's first serve. I don't know if it was the miles per hour, but definitely in terms of the location. You know, comparing this match to the Federer match, 
Anderson was probably going to have to serve as well, if not better, because Djokovic is just that good of a returner. And in that first match for Sped, Anderson has 27 aces. You know, yes, the fifth set was extended, but still 27 aces versus this match where he only has 10. Uh, he had to get more free points with his first serve. And I agree with that sentiment that, you know, Anderson just... All Djokovic had to do was return the ball deep center, get it to neutral, and Anderson was really pressing. He had, you know, 32 unforced errors in this match versus only 26 winners. Again, in that Isner match, he hit over 100 more winners than he did unforced errors, or right around 100. You know, he needed to bring that level again, and obviously he did not. The other thing you look at in this match, you know, as sets one, set two. Set one, he serves 45% of his first serves in. That's not going to work. Set to 64%, but still, he's only winning 50% of his first serve points, 44% of his second serve. So again, he just did not protect his serves at all in those first two sets. And, you know, he picked up his level in the third, but you can't dig yourself a two sets to love hole when you're playing someone who's playing as well as Novak Djokovic. And so I guess that was a long way of answering your question, Jamie. But Matt, is that what you're saying in terms of the sentiment of just Anderson's first serve wasn't quite as aggressive as it needed to be? Yeah, I think so. But, Jamie, don't you think? I mean, we know Anderson can drop 140. We saw him do that earlier in the tournament. I mean, if he was ripping some in there, you know, if you look at his first serve win percentage, he only won 69% of his first serve points. I know I know his percentage was low, but even when he's making that first serve, he's still only winning 69%. I, I think if he's, if he's dropping some more bombs in there, that percentage goes up a little bit, even against Novak, and I think maybe that could have helped him out. Now, look, does he win the match because of it? You know, obviously, probably not. I mean, we don't know that for sure. But I think that would have been a way, at least in the first couple sets, to have those sets be a little bit tighter. I don't know. I wanted to, I wanted to see him bring the heat, really, off the serve because we know we can do it. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, I, I think that's fair. He needed to do more with it. But if you go back and look through the numbers of, like, Anderson's other matches, you know, so what was this match? 126 on the first, 110 on the second. That's the exact stat line that we saw when he beat Federer. Uh, it was 126 average on the first serve, 110 average on the second, I believe. Um, so, I mean, I think you're right. Like, obviously, you know, look for free points when you can get them. I mean, that's great if you can do that in bomb and serves. Uh, however, you know, I, I mean, maybe it is a matter of just effectiveness. You know, maybe it is a matter of just what, where you're putting the serve and what you can actually do with it. Or, or maybe it more has to do with Djokovic. Maybe it has to do with the fact that, hey, he's a better returner. He's going to get these balls back and you're not going to be able to hurt him with it. Um, I don't know. It could be a lot of different things. But, yeah, bottom line, you're right. The Anderson serve was not as dominant and it didn't hurt the opponent as much as it had in, in earlier rounds. And So I think that's why you see those two clean 6-2, 6-2 first sets where Djokovic was just able to pounce on him at pretty much every turn. Well, I think another thing I noticed, and again, I may have mentioned this earlier, but Anderson, and it's probably because his legs are exhausted, he played a 50-game fifth set with Isner two days before, but it was an all-day affair. You know, first set of this match, 11 unforced errors. Second set, 14 unforced errors. He was pressing in those two sets, as opposed to usual when instead of maybe trying to take the first or second ball, a big rip on that and move forward, he was, you know, trying to, uh, you know, he wasn't willing to wait it out. Yes, Djokovic puts a ton of pressure on him by keeping the ball deep and by moving him to the outer thirds of the court, but still, Anderson made a couple sloppy unforced errors, seemed to miss every forehand approach shot in that first set of the match. And then, you know, in the third set, I think he was a little more patient. And, you know, that's the set, only seven unforced errors. And he hit 16 winners in that set as well. You know, his level picked up and he just pressed a little bit too much at the beginning. You know, whether it's the serve, whether, it, again, it, I, for me, it was the approach shot. And because of that slow start, you know, he, he could never overcome it in this match. I mean, one thing that I thought he did really well earlier in the tournament, Anderson, was, you know, hanging some rallies from the baseline. And that's something, you know, that we didn't really know if he was going to be able to answer that call. And, you know, against Federer specifically, you know, he took Federer toe-to-toe -to -toe from the baseline, which was super impressive. I mean, I didn't think he could do it. I thought Federer was going to come out and win that match in straight sets. Anderson, all the credit to him. He was great. But like you said, Alex, just pressing too much early in this match, too many errors he really had those cut down, you know, in previous matches in, in Wimbledon. And, you know, he didn't have it. And against a guy like Novak, who's going to track every ball down anyways, that's, you know, 
that's a straight set well, loss right there for you when you're making those kinds of errors. I feel like we've spent a lot of time breaking down Anderson, rightfully so because he played phenomenally this tournament. But like you mentioned, Matt, uh, Djokovic was just incredible. I mean, the guy makes 13 unforced errors against a big hitter like Anderson. That's an incredible stat considering the amount of pressure Anderson's game puts on their, his opponents. Uh, I mean, you saw it against Nadal. You just saw it all week. This was, I don't want to say vintage Novak, but this is a fit Novak who just, with his flexibility, with his ability to slide on the grass court, uh, he just moves at a level no other player on the ATP Tour can match. And again, the backhand down the line, the backhand across, just the depth on the ground strokes. He was in a top, you know, he played like someone who wins a Grand Slam has to. And it's a testament to his level, it's a testament to his recovery, it's a testament to his coaching team. And, you know, again, Anderson had five set points in the third, didn't matter. There was never a doubt in my mind that Novak was going to take the set. He came up with the big first serves like he needed to, just like he did all week long. And in the end, yeah, I think the best player won this tournament. And so, I guess, on that note, you look at this tournament you look at this Wimbledon and you try and put it in the scheme of the ATP tour this year uh, and you know let's talk about some of the biggest winners and some of the biggest losers and just the big picture items coming out of this Wimbledon so I, I asked you both to make lists I wanted your three biggest winners your three biggest losers some fun honorable mentions as well as as well as our favorite matches and then the players we're going to be watching this summer on the hard court so let, let's start with you Jamie um in terms of the three biggest winners from this event, I, I think this is the natural segue. Novak's your biggest winner, right? Yep, easy. Uh, I think it's I think it's almost too obvious. We didn't know if he was coming back or if he was really back, and uh, I think it's safe to say he's he's back. Um, so it's good. <laughs> that was a succinct uh, well, summary. He's still an underdog, right, Matt? Is he an underdog? U.S. Open. <laughs> Look, man, this whole thing goes back to Gruskin making fun of me for not making. <laughs> Well, can, yeah, I, can I just say as well, you know, we've mentioned this before, but on the Nishikori front, he's not a guy I had, but as you mentioned, for him to come back, you know, earlier this year, he lost first round of a challenger to Denis Novikov, then he wins the Dallas challenger, actually beat Mackie McDonald in the final, which it's fun to see how they've both had success. And yeah, as you mentioned, for him to come back to the quarterfinal, really impressive from him and his team. That's how you want a rehab to, you know, carry out, right? Right, yeah, a good amount of progression, um, and yeah, I mean, they, they've got to be thrilled that he's coming back, so hopefully he's even stronger uh, when we start up for the U.S. Open. Um, and then my third winner, I think, is also fairly obvious, it's Anderson. Um, I think it, it proves that he's more than just a, a sort of a one-off, like, hey, he got to the finals last year at the U.S. Open, you know, just like kind of when Nishikori and Chilich did that in 2014, we were like, okay, they got to one because everyone else fell out of the draw, good for them, but Anderson's sort of knocking on the door of the top guys, and you know, I think that final maybe proves he's not there, which is fine. Um, but at the same time, he's making headway and you know, basically telling telling everyone who's watching, like, look, you know, I'm top five material, I'm here, and you know, so that's why I think that makes him a big winner from this tournament. All right, well, I'm going to ask you to save your honorable mentions until the end. I, I completely agree. Right. With, yeah, because I know you have some fun ones, and so do you know. I want to save those, but Matt, what are your three? Well, then let me just say something I forgot to mention earlier. He is up to number 10 in the rankings. If he's seated 10, is he still a dark horse at the U.S. Open? Huge result for him. 
You know, his level throughout the year has been very, very iffy. Uh, Indian Wells, Miami, you know, several months ago, he looked horrible, uh, just a shell of himself. So I I didn't know if he was going to be, you know, ever coming back to the level that he once had. And, you know, I I saw a lot of, I was getting flashbacks, you know, during this tournament of, you know, the no back of old. So that was great for him. Number two for me is going to be a different one, though. Um, I'm going with Mackie McDonald uh, as my number two biggest winner. I think for him it's the best result of his career uh, on tour. He is now into the top 80, fourth round of Wimbledon. Uh, obviously, he hadn't you know, made it that far in a slam. I think he is just rising fast. I look for him to have a great hardcore season. So he, for me, is absolutely one of the biggest winners of the entire weekend or the entire tournament. Uh, and then number three, like Jamie said again, Anderson. I mean, look, he's up to number five in the world now. Huge result for him. He takes out Federer. Everybody thought Federer was going to win the tournament, myself included. Uh, beats Isner in the marathon match. That was, you know, unbelievable result from, you know, from him to come out with that win there. Um, I picked Isner in that one, so uh, I got that one wrong. But yeah, Anderson, I mean, every time I think this guy, you know, I think he gets a little bit overrated or whatever it is, he just, he proves me wrong. And, and he consistently has great results on tour. Maybe not quite good enough to actually win that Grand Slam yet, but he's top five in the world now. So to go through the draw that he had and actually make it to the final, and, you know, I know we bashed him a little bit, you know, about his performance in the final, but I think fatigue had a lot to do with that. He was definitely tired. You know, I I don't care. He's still a big winner for me. Career high ranking now, and, you know, he's going to do damage again, you know, in the future. He's not going anywhere. I think he's... What is he, 31, 32 years old? He's still got some years left if he can keep that serve up. Uh, so those are my three winners. Uh, I mean, totally fair. I think you made a, a, a lot of good points. You stole one of my Mackenzie McDonald takes, which is, you know, your right to do. I guess that's why I let myself go last. Let the guests take the spotlight, of course. But I agree with you, Novak. We've said it all. The guy's back in, you know, top form. It will be great to have another threat to the Federer-Nadal stronghold on the majors. Um, number two for me, I cheated a little bit because I wanted to squeeze in as many guys as possible. There are a lot of big winners from this event. I think one of the biggest winners, college tennis as a pathway to success on the pro tour. You look at it, Mac McDonald, John Isner, Kevin Anderson, all guys who spent time in college. You know, I didn't even talk about the doubles guys, Mike Bryan, champion, uh, Dom Inglot, a former Virginian guy. Uh, he has success. I think he made the semifinal. So a lot of you know, college players, I'm obviously not even mentioning, I'm sure, many, many more. So it's great to see college as a path for development. Obviously, you mentioned Mackie. To see him be able to last a five-set match and then have a run go on, you know, take advantage of his seed, Chilich, be upset, and make it to that fourth round. A great step of growth from him. Uh, again, Isner, up to nine in the world. First career Grand Slam semifinal. Had a really shit year to this point, and he finally backs up that Miami title, his one hot run of the you know entire year, by making uh, his first major semifinal. Just great to see him break through. And yeah, his style of tennis might be a little bit dull, but still uh, great to see an American like him have success. You guys already talked about Anderson. But then my hot take and my third winner, Jack Sock, the doubles player. And the reason I say that, you know, for him to fill in for Bob Bryan, you know, part of that sacred partnership of the Bryan brothers and fill in seamlessly, him and Mike end up going on a run to the title. To see Jack Sock have that sort of fun on a tennis court, to see him just enjoying himself and finding success, that's part of, it's just so enjoyable to watch. It's part of what makes him so, his personality so magnetic, the way you can tell when he's visibly enjoying himself on a tennis court and the way it affects his play and it's so beneficial to it. And so it was really a pleasure, you know, hopefully he gets confidence from this result, is able to carry it on, uh, have some success, you know, in this hardcore season, because if he doesn't, you know, his ranking is going to tumble. He has not had a good year at all as a singles player. And so I'll use that to transition to our three biggest losers. Um, actually, let's do the honorable mentions first. So, Jamie, I, you, I know you have some fun honorable mentions. Actually, any comments from either of you guys on my takes? Yeah, I'll talk about Sock a little bit. Uh, I mean, yeah, 
it's it is good to see him get out there and we you know Gruskin you and me talked about this a little bit um, but you know I hope this does sort of spur him on you know it would be great to see that sort of translate into some singles so at least in terms of attitude and fire and passion because Jack Sock on a doubles court you know is just not not the same one you see like midway through a tournament or even if he gets to the second round or whatever it's just it's just not the same guy so you, you hope that kind of turns him around a little bit um, but I, I like I like Jack Sock the doubles player as a winner what I hope doesn't happen is that he gets stuck in that sort of doubles column because yeah while I do love watching him play doubles and obviously he's very you know good at it and can find success I hope that it doesn't just become doubles is the only place for Sock and that he actually rebounds and you know you know, get some of his potential fulfilled uh, in the singles court. Well, but, uh, can I just say real quick, though, Matt, on that note of the college tennis players, I thought you might jump in there. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think this tournament, I, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, sample size, any one tournament validates college tennis as a pathway. But what did you think of this idea that, you know, college tennis remains a relevant way and a prominent way to uh, develop your game and then subsequently achieve success on the tour? Yeah, no, I mean, of course, I love to see it. Um, and again, I don't think it's for everybody. You know, some guys are, are never going to go to college. They're, you know, they're training their whole lives to be pros and they're going to go straight pro. But I think what this shows is that, you know, for certain guys, college really, really can boost you. You know, you can learn a lot physically, mentally by playing these kind of matches, you know, competing even with a team. Um I think it just shows that for certain guys, that really is the way to go because, you know, now we're seeing a lot of these guys develop later in their careers. I mean, look at our two finalists, Novak and Anderson, both over 30 years old. These guys continue to play great tennis. Rafa, Roger, you know, they're all well into their 30s now. So I think college is a great pathway for, you know, guys to really develop uh, physically, you know, for one, more than probably anything else. Um, but again, it's not for everybody. You know, the sample size is small. There's not a ton of guys, you know, that we see out of the draw that, that do play college. But the few that do, it just goes to show that, you know, if you're if you're not quite ready to take that jump, you know, coming out of juniors, then college can be a great way to, uh, to transition. I love it. Well, I think the big thing is you mentioned that point physically. Mackenzie McDonald, John Isner, Kevin Anderson – all needed to develop physically. You look at Isner and Anderson, obviously both are giants, but they need time to grow into their body, to become stronger so that they're able to last, you know, three out of five sets, 26, 24 in a fifth set. And now both of those guys are capable of doing that. Obviously they've put a ton of work in since college, but you can only imagine what an unrefined Isner and Anderson look like in their early years on tour. You know, Mackie McDonald, he's the opposite case. He's 5'11", and it takes him a little bit of time to fill out his frame, you know, be able to last a five-set match like we saw him do in this tournament against Jerry and then subsequently come back and win a few more matches because he's not physically affected. And I think that's a testament to the time he spent developing his body at USC, you know, maturing a little bit, growing into it. But, yeah, I mean, Jamie, you played college tennis. What do you think? But I will say this. I think someone like Jack Sock, maybe, I think you have to kind of kind of, kind of ask yourself, like, okay, maybe could he have been someone that could have gone to college? Would that have helped him mature a little bit and given him some, you know, structure beforehand? And, you know, one thing that's interesting when you think about soccer, at least when I think about him, look look at the times where you've seen him most fired up and most just invested in his own game. It's when he's playing doubles or Davis Cup, or did you see him last year when he was playing Labor Cup? I mean, he, he was absolutely loving it. He was playing some of his best tennis, at least, that I've ever seen. Um, and so it kind of makes you think, like, is that team dynamic? Like, could that have taught him some more things? Could that have made him mature and get up to a higher level when he gets to the pros? I don't know. Uh, but it's something, it's something interesting, especially when you see success from people who did play college. I think it just makes you, uh, makes you think about it even more. Well, I will say Rothman and I's first episode for Crack Rackets was a Laver Cup review. And yes, you noticed how much fun Jack Sock has in a team setting. It's, you know, our guy Parson Damati right now is covering a, is it the WTT tour? And, and he's, you know, doing a phenomenal job. So go check out his coverage. But yeah, I love the team tennis environment. I think it's beneficial to any player who plays the sport. And so I, I agree. You have to wonder on a question like that. Maybe he would have matured a little bit uh, had he taken the college route. But uh, all right, real quick, give me your honorable mentions, Jamie. For the winners? Yeah. All right. 
goes to the people who were going to watch the women's final. Then they got to watch the end and phenomenal ending at that of the Djokovic Nadal. And then they got to watch the match they were actually supposed to watch, which was Serena and Kerber, two huge names. Easily the biggest winners there. How they scored that deal, I don't know, but good for them. Lifetime decision there. It's big. Oh, totally agree with you. What about you, Matt? You got any? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll go with the conventional way. Jamie, I love that answer, by the way. I was thinking <laughs> the same exact thing. Those guys really lucked out. I wish I would have had one of those tickets. Um, <laughs> But I'm going to go with a couple honorable mentions for biggest winners. i got to throw my man John Isner in there, um, making his first Grand Slam semi. Huge result for him. Uh, you mentioned Gruskin. He's had kind of an up-and-down year. The beginning of it was not good. But uh, I enjoy seeing the success that he had at Wimbledon. So uh, it's definitely a big win for him. And then uh, number two for me, i got to go with Ernest Golbis. Ooh. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, I had written him off. I forgot that he was even in the draw. I mean, when we first did the, the preview podcast, I don't think we mentioned him at all. He's, he was kind of an afterthought. We hadn't seen him. You know, he comes out and he, and he plays very good tennis. He ends up dropping that match to Nishikori in four sets. But, oh, man, I mean, it was just great to see him back and playing pretty well. That's a guy that I've always enjoyed watching. So, for me... Maybe, you know, this is a win for him to kind of get back on track, and maybe we'll be seeing a little bit more of uh, our, our man Ernie Gulbis. <laughs> well, let's hope so. That fear hand is something. That's the only nickname Brad Gilbert's ever given that I enjoy, the fear hand. It's, just, it's, it, it's literally scary what Ernest Gulbis does when he swings on his forehand. But I, I agree with you. My honorable mention, some of the young guys, Tsitsipas, Hachanov, Tiafo. I thought they all looked like they belonged in, you know, the second and third rounds of a Grand Slam. They seemed like players who are now certainly top 50 talents and, and continue to have upside moving forward. And it's nice to see Hechanov, you know, take out Ferrer. Then he takes out Baghdadis, who had just beaten TM. And then he takes out Tiafo after going down two sets of love. Him in particular, I was very impressed with. Tsitsipas, the weapons, the athleticism that I didn't know he had, the serve... A lot of flair to his game, a lot to like, and a lot to move forward. But my biggest honorable mention are to people like myself who said Fed, and of course I give myself a pat on the back in this honorable mention, but for people who knew Fed and Nadal's reign of six straight slams had to end at some point. So we were validated, sort of, because I don't know if it counts if Djokovic, uh, you know, he ends up winning. I guess he is part of the big four. But still, I said from the get-go, it would not be Fed or Nadal. Did I think it would be Djokovic? No. But I am happy their six straight slam streak is over, because hopefully we'll see some of these guys start to break through. But... I don't know. Any response to that? You don't want my response to that. <laughs> Jamie, go ahead. I'm tired of the I'm tired of the anti like legend sentiment. I don't I don't get it. I know. I, I understand that you don't want it to be all the same. That's about the only angle I see. But I mean, if they're deserving these wins, like, geez, I don't know. They're playing a phenomenal tennis, and they're old, dude. Well, at least Fed is. He's old. I don't know how you're not impressed and, like, enamored by watching that, but maybe that's just me. Here's the thing, Gruskin. One day, you're going to be old, and you're going to be sitting at the club yep. on the tennis court, and you're going to be like, man, I, I remember when Fed and Rafa and Joker exactly. and Murray and all these guys were playing, and it's, you know, you're going to wish that they had played longer just to see that greatness. I, I promise you, <laughs> when it comes down to it, when these guys retire... up. My career is long gone. I retired many moons ago, um, at least for my tennis career. Secondly, <laughs> my laughter that I was just cackling the whole time. That was a, I loved every second of that. Um, no, I agree. I fell in love with Nadal's level of play this Wimbledon. I certainly appreciated it. Just because I don't want them to win in the end doesn't mean I don't appreciate their level. I think there is a difference. And so, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't brand it as the anti-Fed Nadal crowd. But it's nice to see them play that level of tennis and have someone else rise to that level, such as an Anderson 
or I guess a Djokovic, even though we've seen it before. That so I'm I'm happy with their presence. I'm happy for what they continue to do for, for the game, but I'm happy to see someone finally rise to the occasion and knock them off. I guess does that make sense? Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Let's move on. Yeah. All right. Well, then it sounds like I'm going to be one of your three biggest losers, which I certainly should be given my predictions at the beginning. Uh, but we kind of mentioned this. So I want to start with my first one, just about Jack Sock, the singles player, drops to five and thirteen. Although he's still number fourteen in the rankings, but you look at this. This is fourth straight loss at a at a Grand Slam in the first round. Uh, Matt, I know you've talked about this. I believe you wrote an article in Crack Rackets about this. Am I right? You are absolutely right. Yeah, see, I knew I read. So give me your thoughts. Share with us what you said then about Jack Sock's struggles in singles. Oh, man, look, it's to the point now where I don't even want to talk about Jack Sock anymore. I'm writing him off. Uh, I'm writing him off for the rest of this year. I I said that when I wrote that article. I told him to get his act together, you know, (laughs) during the grass court season and turn his year around. Well, look, John Isner did that, right? He he listened to me. Somebody read that article, but it wasn't Jack Sock. So uh, at this point, I'm going to write Jack Sock off for the rest of the year. I don't think that he is going to be able to come back and defend the points that he gained uh, towards the end of the year last year. I don't look for him to be a threat at the U.S. Open. Uh, I'm highly frustrated with Jack Sock. I know he had a great doubles win. That is a whole different issue. I think he could be one of... You know, he's one of the very top doubles players in the world. Great result, uh, but from a single standpoint, uh, man, I think I'm going to have to wait till 2019 to talk about Jack Sock again, to be honest. I'm just, I'm so pissed at, at what I've seen out of Jack Sock this year that it's it's not even funny. I, I think that's fair. Jamie, do you want to hop in? Anything to add? No. <laughs> I think I'm that's... Good. That's fair. I, it's, it's hard. I can't talk about it. It's, it, it's, it hurts. I pre- yeah. I, I, that, I, that's fair. The one point I will make, I do like that similar to the uh, to the clay season, there are a lot of warm-up events for Jack Sock to get singles matches under his belt, even if that means going to Winston-Salem and the City Open as well as Cincinnati and then the Canada Masters event. I'm not sure if it's in Montreal or Toronto this year. Uh, he just will have a lot of opportunities to get singles confidence under his belt. So I will always say don't sleep on Jack Sock, and you know, I'm willing to put myself out there and get my heart broken, but it was very, very disappointing again to but, see him But this lose. is what happens. You, you put your hope in him, even though something bad happens. You're like, ah, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> we'll see when he turns it around, and then yeah, first round loss. Huh. Yeah. And then you get to the next major, and he wins the first round in five sets, and then gets beat in straights in the second round. All right. Like, Dude, what yep. the fuck? All right, all right. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, so, I, I, at, at some point, he just got it. jinxes it, and he comes back, whatever. But honestly, it's hard. It's painful to follow with some sort of investment. So right now, I'm just going to act like I don't care, and if something happens, great. Yep. Me too. All right, I'm in on that. Well, then, I gave my one. Jamie, go ahead. Give your three. <laughs> I don't know the order of this, but I think one has to be Federer. Um, I know it's, you know, that's tough. Hold on, I have to stop you. I also have Roger Federer. Westoff, cue the fire alarms. Unbelievable that we have the same take on this, because I agree. Well, it is. I mean, he's the defending champ. You know, he's got all these expectations. Skips the clay for the grass. It's Federer on grass. You have the expectations, and it's, you know, there you go. It's, it's Federer on grass. What else do you have to say? Um, and you come in, and it's, it would have been different maybe if he loses to an on-fire Djokovic in the finals or an unrelenting Nadal maybe, but yeah, you lose before the semis in an incredibly open half of the bracket to Kevin Anderson after being up two sets to love with the match. Play. It's just too much. He's got to be in the loser column for that one. Um, yeah. yeah, it's hard. It was hard to watch. But, uh, yeah, he deserves to be in the loser column after that one. But hopefully he'll bounce back to the U.S. Open. You never know. Um, next loser i got to put is Farif. I oh, It is so hard to watch this guy in majors. I, I really don't understand why the, the lack of success is there. I really, I really couldn't explain it. Um, I, I, I truly do, do not get it at all. Uh, can someone else help me out? Does anyone, like, what are we seeing with Farif? Does anybody? He refuses to change his style of play. Is what it is. It, uh, he plays clay court tennis on every single surface, 
and even at the French, he can't seem to get it done. But especially on these faster surfaces, if he refuses to change his tactics, he's going to continue to lose. That's another guy that I'm extremely frustrated with. He's way too talented. He's too good, you know, to be having these consistently poor results at slams. So, yeah, I, yeah, and yeah. it's weird because I, I mean, I think you make you know a decent point there. You see, like as if he is playing on the clay, but then you would expect him to play like unbelievable, you know, French Open tennis. But we haven't seen that, and so, I don't know. It's I know, tough. I know, it's tough. It's tough to watch. Anyway, but yeah, he barely squeaks out of a match with Taylor Fritz, which he probably would have lost had it not gone the second day. Then loses to Golbus by losing the last set, fifth set, six zero. Like uh, that's disappointing in and of itself. He comes out a loser in this tournament. Okay, next next loser, Croatia. Just the entire fucking. <laughs> you get to the World Cup final, and you, you get beat down. Okay, great. <laughs> then you're like, oh well, what else do we have? Oh yeah, we have this up and comer named Chorich. He just won a tournament in Germany. He goes and loses first round. It's phenomenal. You're like, oh, what about our, you know, our steadfast man Chilich, the three seed? Ah, yeah. How about he loses after winning one match to a guy who matches these straights? It's like Jesus, dude. Get your <laughs> together, Croatia. Like, God, dude. I don't even know. It's just poor guys. I mean, my God. Oh, that's really... Anything to say about that one? Keep going? Or should I keep going to the honorable mention? Who wants to talk about Croatia? That was really that's... good. I also have... Chilich and Chorich as some of my losers. Chilich honorable mention because bad days happen and he kind of had that weather delay screw him, which sucked. So, you know, I do want to give him only honorable mention status, but like you mentioned, the draw was wide open for him. I have the the princes that, you know, you mentioned Federer, enough said there. Um, you mentioned Zverev and Chorich as well, but three other guys, three guys we were told over these years were going to emerge as slam champions. Tiem, Dimitrov and Kyrgios, and Kyrgios to a lesser extent because he is younger, but you talk about the big five, Team Kyrgios, Dimitrov, Zverev, Chorch, the guys who really have been the favorites and are still in an age range where you could say, you know, they could have a prime still of at least two years where they dominate the tour if they reach the level we thought they would. They go a combined four and five in this event, you know, Team loses first round Baghdadis. Kyrgios, in a terrible third-round exit versus Nishikori. Dimitrov, first round to an out-of-form Wawrinka. You mentioned the Zverev Golbis, and then Chorch loses to Medvedev. I just continue to wonder, when are these guys going to have a breakthrough at a slam? When are we going to see them you know, really assert themselves? Yes, team made a final of the French Open a slam ago. So I guess him, it's when is he going to make the adjustment on grass. That's why he's in this category. But... For Kyrgios, Zverev, and Chorich in particular, this is another opportunity wasted. It's not as though, you know, you can't beat an Isner and Anderson at any given day. And so I feel like they w- it was a wasted opportunity. Uh, Matt, what about you? Who are your three biggest losers? And then, Jamie, I promise we'll get to your honorable mentions. Well, I only have two here. And, and you know, I'm just going to piggyback off of what you said there, Gruskin. Uh, but for me, I'm looking squarely at Grigor. And Zverev. Uh, Jamie already hit on the Zverev thing. Uh, He is my number one biggest loser again, and he pretty much will continue to be at every single major until, you know, he he reaches probably, I'll say, at least the semifinals. I mean, look, he was the four seed. He's top four in the world. So if you're playing to your seed, you should make the semifinals. He has yet to do that. He has yet to make the quarterfinal. Um, so he, he will continue to be my biggest loser at every slam until he can prove me otherwise. Well, I, I hate to do this to you, but, you know, hey, great shot, Matt. He did make the uh, quarterfinal of the French Open. But still, I, I agree with your sentiment in general. Okay, yeah, my bad on that one. Thanks for your, uh, your stat there, Gruskin. Always <laughs> helping me out. Appreciate that. Uh, but still, yeah, you know, even with that being said, one quarterfinal, not good enough for a guy that's four in the world. So... I, I've got to see more out of him. And then number two, I'm looking right at Grigor Dimitrov. Um, you know, a talented player came into this tournament six, uh, six seed, and he loses in the first round. The sad thing about him is he's so talented, and he just he continues to have mental breakdowns. You know, he puts himself in position to win. You know, even against Stan in the first round of Wimbledon, he put himself in great position. He was up 4-1 in the, in the second set, 5-2, I think. You know, he puts himself in a winning position, and then he just crumbles. And it happens mentally, and then it affects his physical, you know, his tennis game. And I just, I hate to see it, but, oh, man, he's got to correct something. Because, again, this is another guy like Asperez that is t- 
top ten in the world firmly, and he just he, he continues to disappoint at majors. I know he's made the semifinals a couple of times uh, back a couple of years ago, once at Wimbledon, once I think at the Australian Open, but. Man, I mean, when you're the sixth seed, you can't be losing in the first round. I mean, you're going to get good draws. And like you mentioned, Gruskin, Stan was not in good form. I mean, I, before that, I don't know when he won a match, what Rinka that is. So those are the two guys for me that, you know, I'm looking at even more so than the teams and the Kyrgios because team actually had to retire in his first round match against Baghdadis. So I'm going to give him a slight pass on that. He retired. He was losing. I mean, I think he would have lost the match anyway, but regardless, I'll give him a slight pass here, but I'll, I'll have my eye on him, you know, the rest of the year. And Kyrgios is just Kyrgios. Look, I mean, he disappoints continuously every single year. So for me, he's not really a biggest loser just because, you know, it, it's typical for him. But those other two guys, Zverev, Dimitrov, I completely agree with you. But all right, let's have a little fun, Jamie. Let's hear those honorable mentions. All right, well, you know, the, the first one's a little more straightforward. I got two of them for you. The first one's Fritz. I think it's just more because it was an opportunity lost slash wasted, whatever you want to call it. You know, he has that match with Zverev in the second round where he's got the momentum and, you know, they have to, they have to complete the match the next day. But he ends that up two sets to one after winning that tiebreak set 7-0. And then comes out in the fourth and fifth sets and wins three games combined and those two sets and loses the match. Um, and yeah, you're playing Zverev, but at the same time, that's a huge opportunity you have. And not only did he not capitalize on it, but he got absolutely whacked the next day. So kind of a, he doesn't make it into the you know the real true loser column just because it was a five set match with the guy who's seated four, and that's fair. But I, I got to put him as an honorable mention just because it was an opportunity lost. And then for my uh, my real true honorable mention for the biggest loser, the poor fucks who got stuck watching a 50 game fifth set <laughs> instead of seeing the Djokovic Nadal match actually finish. <laughs> like, can you imagine being one of those people? Like, holy shit! Like that sucks. And I, I'm sorry. You know, if you were a spectator of that and you were listening to this, I am truly, truly sorry. Like, damn. Well, I agree with you. One of my honorable mentions are the officials who haven't voted out the 11 p.m. curfew. Like, are you serious? What year is this? And we still have an 11 p.m. curfew? Huh? Yeah, I don't get that one either. Yeah. So, I completely agree with you. That, that was just this a screwy, you know, series of events. And hopefully Wimbledon cleans that up for next year. Uh, some of my other honorable mentions, you mentioned Chilich, but... Uniqlo, man. They, they the, for the first impression with Federer, it was not good, or at least in my opinion, Rothman's opinion, and aren't those the only opinion? And Jamie's, those are the opinions that matter, right? And so, um, and then my my biggest honorable mention, a guy who almost got my number three spot, was John Isner versus Hawkeye Technology. I mean, it was multiple matches where he was questioning whether these calls were good or not and saying, you know, that ball was clearly out. The crowd knows this technology robbed me. Are we really at a point where we need to argue Hawkeye? Is that another argument we really need to be having right now in tennis? And it, it was just a – it was a low point for me. It, it almost – I mean, it turned – that Bemelmans match, I almost – wanted Bemelmans to win because anytime you're fighting Hawkeye, that, that's just – that's too low for me. Um, yeah, that's fair. That's pretty rough. Yeah, but all right, let's do this one quickly, and then we can get to our last category and you know do our usual breakdown. But best matches, just real quick, Jamie, one, two, three. Okay, well, I think the first two are pretty obvious. Number one, Djokovic versus Nadal. I mean, that's, that's a phenomenal match all the way around. Uh, plus, you have the anticipation of what's going to happen the next day sort of deal. And it's a shame that they didn't actually just get to finish it. But it also did lead for some, oh, what's going to happen next and more sort of build up to the, the last two sets or whatever. But, yeah, but still a phenomenal match anyway you slice it. Uh, second, I think oh, boy, any way you slice it? Hey, great shot. Oh, uh, thanks. Anyway, uh, we'll go to Nadal and Del Potro is the second one. Uh, I mean, just the quality of tennis was just so high in this match. And you feel bad that either one of them had to lose and... You know, it also is just for me, it sucks watching Del Potro lose any time. Just, I love the guy, but absolutely just great match all the way around. Um, and then for my third one, yeah, I think you got to go Simone and Delpo. Well, I guess I'm doing some repeats in this Delpo twice and Nadal twice, but that match goes 7 6, 7 6, 5 7, 7 6. You know, that it was just really competitive all the way through, and it was just absolutely entertaining for me to watch. So that's my one I'm throwing in there. Matt, what are you thinking? 
Uh, yeah, I don't even want to throw in a third. For me, it's just those two that Jamie mentioned at one and two, Novak versus Rafa, and then Rafa versus Delpo. I think the quality of tennis um, in those two matches were clear-cut above any other match throughout the entire tournament. Those, I mean, those are going to go down as classics. I mean, I'm not going to forget. I've watched both of those matches in their entirety, and, I mean, I'm going to remember those for a long, long time. Those were absolute classics. Um and for me, it's just, it's those two above everything else. I don't even want to pick a third because there, there's not another match to me that really deserves to be in the categories as those two. I, Matt, that was a very, very good argument. I, I That was so well, I agree with you. Those two matches were just a cut above maybe anything else we've seen on tour this year. So that was really well said. Um, I will say, I listed 10 matches in total that I thought were candidates for best matches and you loop this into an argument we had last pod, Jamie, about whether they need to remove the fifth set at Grand Slams. Nine of the ten matches I chose went to a fifth set. So maybe anyone who's saying that is crazy. Maybe anyone who's saying that you don't get a high level of play in sets four and five. Again, you, you have to realize the Isner-Anderson conundrum was so unique in that you have two 6'8-plus guys who are huge servers, not the best returners, and it was just a recipe for disaster. Um, to me... That third slot, it actually has to go to the Zvira Fritz match. I just thought those first two or first three sets of play, the level was so high from Fritz. And just you think if that's a future matchup we're seeing in semifinals of Grand Slams, if those guys can continue to develop physically, the level of tennis could be really, really incredible. And so I enjoyed watching that match a lot. But okay, let's do our last thing and then we're going to actually take a commercial break before we get to our changeover chat. Let's talk about the three players we're going to be watching this summer as the U.S. Open Series kicks off. And as guys we think, you know, maybe we'll either A, make some noise, break to the top ten, or B, maybe even be contenders at the U.S. Open. So, you know what, Jamie, I've let you serve first all podcast. Matt, it's your turn. Who are your three players to watch? All right, I've got three interesting ones. Not necessarily guys that I might think can contend or break into the top ten or whatever, but these are guys that... I think eventually you're going to get to that point. Um, and I'm just, I'm going to be following them closely to see how they finish out this year. Um, for me, number one, uh, I'm going to go with Alex Dimonor. Okay. This guy really. Hold on. Me hold on. You give me shit for my Dimonor pick over Nadal for weeks on end. And now you have the audacity to say he's one of the players you're watching. Well, yeah. Why can't, why can't, <laughs> what, what do those two things have to do with each other? Uh, Oh, that's, that's fair, but go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, I, I understand where you're coming from, but no, I told you, I told you that I really like Demonor. Okay, so this guy, I, I want to see what he can do during the hardcore season at the U.S. Open. Obviously, I don't think he's a major contender to win it or anything, but he can do some damage. He can surprise some people. I thought he had the ability to take a set off of Rafa at Wimbledon. That didn't happen. But this is a young guy that I just, I really like his spirit, the way that he plays the game, his energy, his attitude. I think he's going to have a lot of success. So I'm watching him. Number two, Stefano Tsitsipas. I was really, really impressed with him at Wimbledon. I had obviously watched him, you know, throughout the entire year, but it it was at Wimbledon that I really kind of sat back and said, you know what? I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. I really like his flair, his guile on the court. He was diving around a lot, competing for every point. He has a one-handed backhand. Um, You know, he just has that flair. And I think, you know, physically, I think he's a strong kid. Um, And he's another guy that is just going to keep going. Do I think he can contend for the U.S. Open? No, probably not. But, again, like Demonur, I think he can surprise some people, maybe pull off an upset or two, you know, reach the fourth round like he did at Wimbledon. Uh, So that's another guy that I'm going to be continuing to watch. And then number three is a guy that we haven't seen in a little while, but he's coming back off injury. It's Andre Rublev, the young Russian. This is a guy that I saw live in person last year at the Winston-Salem Open. He just cracks the ball. Um, Another young player. He needs to develop physically, but this is a guy that can, you know, he can go out there and at least ball strike with anybody. He can hit the ball on the court with anybody. Mentally, I think he needs some improvement. You know, there's certain things in his game that he needs to improve. Uh, You know, fitness-wise, size-wise, that's where these injuries are coming into play. But 
he was ranked around 30 in the world when he got hurt. I'm not sure where he's at now, but this, again, this is a guy that can surprise some people. You don't want to see him early in the draw. If you're one of the favorites, a Fed, a Nadal, a Chilich, a Zverev, you do not want to see a Demonur or a Tsitsipas or um, a Rublev in any of the first couple rounds because they have that upset potential. So for me, I'm watching those three guys very closely the rest of this year. I love every one of those picks, Matt. And just, you know, Rublev right now, live ranking of 50. So if he returns healthy, he'll obviously still have direct entry into the U.S. Open. And yeah, he's a guy you don't want to see with his forehand, the weapon it is, the serve. Uh, I completely agree with you on Tsitsipas. He was one of my guys as well. So I'll just slide in. You know, ranked 32. He's 22 and 17 on the year ATP Tour. He's made an ATP final. He's made fourth round Wimbledon. He's had success on grass, on clay, on hard courts. This is a guy that is going to be a threat moving forward. And some of the guys he's already beaten this year, you know, Gasquet, Shapovalov, Team, Schwartzman, Karino Busta, Anderson, Chorich. He's certain, you know, 17 losses is a lot. So to say he is a top 10 player, like you mentioned, Matt, that's a stretch right now. But he is capable of playing at a top 10 level on any given day. And it's certainly someone you don't want opposite you in a first round scenario if you're a seated, you know, a seated player because it's a dangerous first round matchup. But all right, Jamie, who are your guys? And I, oh, I should say one more thing. Uh, I, I told you guys a dis, as a disclaimer, every next gen American player we're obviously going to be watching, so we're not going to count them. And then for me, I'm obviously not going to say Andy Murray because you know I've got to watch Murray. But all right, sorry. With that, Jamie, go on. You're good. No, I think all three of us are interested in seeing what Stefanos can put together. Uh, you know, he's piqued our interest with this one especially and what, what he's been able to do. And now it's just a matter of can he put stuff together consistently? You know, can he make deep runs in big tournaments consistently? And so I think that's another question we have, and that's one of the guys I'll be watching because you're right, he's dangerous, especially if he gets put up. You know, against you know someone seated in the first round, you know that's that's a nightmare first round. I would love um, to watch him play Federer. Just the contrast of one-handed backhands, I think it would be very very fun tennis. Well, I guess actually, since he's seated now, he probably won't. Yeah, he wouldn't see a seat in the first place. You know, you know, if he sees someone who's like decent, who maybe is a favorite first second round, that's tough. Anyway, I'll be watching him. Uh, next, I think it's Anderson. Uh, I think it's because. He's had two, and he's, he's been a finalist twice now, once at the U.S. Open and once just at Wimbledon. And so now it's turned into, okay, this guy can prove he can make it to this sort of stage, but now what? Is he going to be consistently doing that? Was it just the one or two times? Is he going to be able to sort of break through even further and win one? You know, so I don't know. There's just a lot of questions there that I think should be answered, and the U.S. Open should have should provide us with some answers to that, or at least some insight to see if he can uh, keep up the keep up the consistency. And then my last one's Nishikori. Uh, I think this you love Nishikori. One, well, I love the story. I love <laughs> the consistent progression to come back from an injury. I think I don't know. It's pretty inspiring for me, and I think I got to talk about it because I don't think it gets talked about enough in general, but. Uh, regardless of all of that, I mean, I think you see him, you're slowly seeing him come up, come up. You know, like we've talked about, he lost to Djokovic in that match. But, you know, he made a fairly deep run in this tournament. And so if he can do it again at the U.S. Open, I think those are just increasingly good signs for him and his team that, you know, he's back on this road to recovery and he's getting higher and higher and he's coming back to possibly beat Kenny Shikori. And so I think you got to watch for that. And, you know, he's dangerous and he's proven that he can actually win matches now, not just show up in the draw. I don't know. No, I, I, again, all guys to watch, certainly. Um, I, I did this a little bit differently. I mean, obviously, I came up with the question, so I don't know how I could say I did it differently. Uh, but I, I kind of wanted three tiers of player. Uh, my guy who, I guess two of them ended up being young, but my young guy to watch was Tsitsipas. My established veteran, my guy who I think really is a threat to win the U.S. Open, and shout out to Max Rothman because this is his take from a, a previous pod. Juan Martín Del Potro, you know, ranked number four in the world, 32-8 and eight on the year. He makes the quarterfinals here, semifinals of Roland Garros. Yes, he, did, he struggled at the Australian Open, but since then he won Indian Wells, won Acapulco, lost semifinals of Miami Open. Those were five consecutive weeks. You know, we've seen his body seem to hold up this year, and so barring injury— I mean, he is, to me, the only guy who consistently puts scares into the top, you know, the Feds, Nadal's, Djokovic's. And, you know, he beat Fed at Indian Wells. Yeah, he lost to Nadal at both Wimbledon and Roland Garros, but 
you know, that Wimbledon match is five sets, and you have to imagine hard court. Del Potro has a little bit of an edge there. Um, don't sleep on Juan Martin Del Potro because of these consistent guys, if you're not going to say the Fed and the Dull, he's the one guy who seems all year long to have played at that top level. And no, there were no Grand Slam titles to this point yet, but I think he's certainly at a level where he's capable of playing that well. Um, any, any comments on that, or should I move on? No, I mean, I like that pick a lot. I mean, obviously, I'm a big Delpo fan, and yeah, you're right. I mean, the guy, the thing I love about Delpo is just his heart, man. I mean, he, if he's tired, if he's, you know, whatever, not completely into it, I mean, he is just going to give 110% every time. Even if he's not feeling it, he competes so well. I love watching him play, and yeah, I mean, he is he is a serious threat always. If he's healthy, as long as he's healthy, if he's healthy and feeling good, he's definitely a threat. Yeah. Um, so, Jamie, you asked me a question. I, I, I should clarify. When I said he has no Grand Slams, I mean he has no Grand Slams this year. Uh, he obviously did win that U.S. Open, and it's why I think he might be a threat to win this year's Open. Uh, but, Jamie, you know, any thoughts on Delpo moving forward? Well, like I said before, I love watching him, but I hate watching him lose. So it's, it's kind of tough for me. When he gets in a tough match, it's hard for me to keep the TV on just because I don't want to – I just don't want to see the guy lose. I, I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big believer in Delpo. And, you know, what's funny, he's someone – he's one of the few, especially at the U.S. Open, because, you know, he's got he's got a little bit of, you know, history there. He won the tournament back in 09. And so, you know, if he steps on Ash, he is someone who, when stepping up to a Nadal or a Federer, not only does he have the no-fear mindset, he also – Second, he has the experience because he knows he can do it. He's won the thing. And third, crowd. He's one of the few people where you'll get a lot of people cheering for him, even against an Adal and a Federer. And so I think those three things especially make him dangerous in addition to just the on-court weapons he has, like the massive on the run for him. But I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully I'll have a really good tournament. Like I said, I always love watching him succeed. Yeah, and wasn't it last year at the U.S. Open, wasn't Del Potro down two sets to love against someone he ended up coming back? Dominic yeah, that was yeah. the Dominic yeah. team match, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they loved him in dead. New York. Yeah, and they just, they love him. And so I, I yeah. agree with you. He is certainly a threat. And then my last guy I wanted to talk about, a guy who I think may have fallen to the back of everyone's minds just because he's been down with an ankle injury since early May, uh, Hyun Chung. You know, Chung's ranked 22 in the world. He's 29 on the year. You look at some of his hardcore results. Miami quarterfinals loses to the winner, Isner. Indian Wells quarterfinals loses to Fed. Australian Open semifinals loses to Fed. Um, he's only lost nine times, but the only losses you'd really question from him are he lost to Tiafo and Haas. Other than that, you know, Edmund, Zverev, Isner, Ferrer, Federer twice. You know, those are excusable losses, and I just think... You know, no loss is excusable, I should say. But I just think in terms of a guy who's going to be consistently seen throughout the hardcore season if he's healthy, don't forget about how well Hyun Chung was playing earlier this year. Just It's so hard to pass him on a hardcore, and he's so relentless with his pressure. I think he's another next-gen guy who, you know, he's already made a Grand Slam semifinal. If the draw opens up like it did at this Wimbledon where there are upsets, I could see him being someone to capitalize on that. My only question with him is if he's healthy. Yeah, you know? it's fair. I mean, I like the guy a lot. I think he definitely has potential to scare some people. I, I think hard courts is clearly his best surface. But for me right now, I just I don't know where he's at physically. So, uh, you know, until until he proves that he can come back and he's feeling good, you know, I just I've got to see that first. But I mean, I, I like him. It's not a bad pick, Ruskin. Oh, I appreciate it. And again, I should have said in the honorable mentions, losers, or maybe just my number one loser, again, were just any of my predictions from earlier this week. But our biggest winner was probably, you know, the fan. Uh, I mean, our biggest winner is probably us, the fans, because we got to see so much incredible tennis from this two-week event. Again, whenever the Grand Slams are going, it really highlights our sport. It's our one time in the spotlight. And I, I don't think this Wimbledon... It, it certainly delivered because you had you know the 26-24 storylines. You had Djokovic's return to the top of the mountain. You know him and Nadal playing another epic match. Anything you could have hoped for. So you know Jamie, Matt, I want to thank you guys for coming on this you know on this journey with me, hopping on, onto these podcasts and breaking down these matches. And you know it was a ton of fun. Obviously, we're going to have you guys moving forward, but. I, you know, I look forward to the U.S. Open as, because I think the draw is really wide open and it should be a lot of fun. Yep, it's been a 
maybe I'll, uh, you know, bring out the best host material when we get to the US. So well, can yeah. I hold out for that? Well, hopefully Westoff just gets better at editing my sh** because... Uh, that's who it is, yeah, right? Yeah, true. come on. It's not the host. Yeah, all of my best yeah. jokes actually get cut out to anyone who thinks... Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, again, thank you guys. Uh, we will, of course, have a changeover chat in this episode, but unfortunately Matt and Jamie have to go. But again, thank you guys for your coverage, and we look forward to getting you back on. We still have to talk about Winnetka. I have so many Winnetka takes. All right. That's all you, man. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Matt, again, thank you as well, and you know, I always appreciate having you guys on. Absolutely, man. It was a pleasure. Love talking with you guys, and We'll be doing it again. For sure. Well, you know, thank you to Matt and Jamie, and, you know, we will have our changeover chat as mentioned. But before we do that, we're going to have a quick break for our advertisers, so stick around. <laughs> 